Good morning, everybody. If you'd open into your book, in the back of the Bible, fifth book from the end of the Old Testament, is a book called Habakkuk. And we're going to study that as we continue our series through the Minor Prophets. As you turn there, um, it occurred to me as we were singing, um, those times we have corporately to worship our God together and celebrate what he, who He is and what He's done. And uh, Later, after the fellowship time, about 11, we're going to continue to celebrate as we have five individuals from our congregation who've chosen to be baptized. And so we're going to encourage you about 11 or so to make your way down to Brooks Lake and looking forward to hearing their story and celebrate with them in baptism. And it's interesting, the journey of life, because there's times in this life we, we celebrate, and then there's times when we pass from this life where we celebrate. Doris Brown, our sister in the Lord, went home to be with the Lord Friday, and so we, we send our sympathies out to the family, and um, there's several connections, and forgive me for not knowing all of them, um, but what a precious lady. Um, I was able to spend some times with her in, in prayer, and man, what a gem. And, uh, but I, as we were thinking, it, 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 it crossed my mind, she's never more alive than she is now. And, uh, and she was exalting the Lord with us. That, that's rich. Yes. Doris. Young. I'm sorry, I got her last name. I'm sorry. Yeah, yeah. Yeah, okay. No, okay. Good catch. And so we, we celebrate with the family um, in a really profound way um, of her passing. As we read through Habakkuk, it's, it's been my prayer, and maybe you've picked up on it, the message of the minor prophets is one, um, you could say it's a message of authenticity. I saw a bumper sticker once that you may have seen. If It said something along the lines, if you are distant from the Lord, guess who moved? I don't like bumper stickers like that because it tries to reduce the Christian life to a slogan. A sarcastic one at that. Because the Christian life isn't always easy. It can't be reduced to a bumper sticker. Matter of fact, it's almost an insult to approach the Christian life that way. Habakkuk won't let us. Habakkuk is going to force you and I to look deep and be authentic in our faith and ask the questions about what we really believe and what really questions we have about life. I'm going to read chapter 1 and then the first verse of chapter 2, and then we'll pray. Follow along. The oracle which Habakkuk the prophet saw. How long, O Lord, will I call for help, and you will not hear? I cry out to you violence, yet you do not save. Why do you make me see iniquity and cause me to look on wickedness? Yes, destruction and violence are before me. Strife exists and contention arises. Therefore the law is ignored and justice is never upheld. For the wicked surround the righteous. Therefore justice comes out perverted. Look among the nations, observe. Be astonished, wonder. Because I am doing something in your days you would not believe if you were told. For behold, I am raising up the Chaldeans, that fierce and impetuous people who march throughout the earth to seize dwelling places which are not theirs. They are dreaded and feared. Their justice and authority originate with themselves. Their horses are swifter than leopards. 
and keener than wolves in the evening. Their horsemen come galloping. Their horsemen come from afar. They fly like an eagle, swooping down to devour. All of them come for violence. Their horde of faces moves forward. They collect captives like sand. They mock at kings, and rulers are a laughing matter to them. They laugh at every fortress and heap up rubble to capture it. Then they will sweep through like the wind and pass on, but they will be held guilty. They whose strength is their God. Are you not from everlasting, O Lord, my God, my Holy One? We will not die. You, O Lord, have appointed them to judge, and you, O Rock, have established them to correct. Your eyes are too pure to approve evil. And you cannot look on wickedness with favor. Why do you look with favor on those who deal treacherously? Why are you silent when the wicked swallow up those more righteous than they? Why have you made men like the fish of the sea, like creeping things without a ruler over them? The Chaldeans bring all them up with a hook, drag them away with their net, and gather them together in their fishing net. Therefore they rejoice and are glad. Therefore they offer a sacrifice to their net and burn incense to their fishing net because through these things their catch is large and their food is plentiful. Will they therefore empty their net and continually slay nations without sparing? I will stand on my guard post and station myself on the rampart and I will keep myself, I will keep watch to see what he will speak to me and how I may reply when I am reproved. Let's pray. Lord, I thank you for your word. I thank you so much for this passage, which means a lot to us as your people. You've left it here to instruct us, to encourage us, and I believe to search us. And I would ask, Holy Spirit, that you would indeed do that. You would search our hearts. Take us deeper. As deep calls to deep, God, would your spirit Call to our spirit. Lord, we thank you that you are so patient with us. We thank you, God, that as we journey through this life and times we struggle and limp and fall, I thank you that you are a God who's for us, not against us. I thank you that you are a God, as Jay prayed, that will never leave us nor forsake us. I thank you that you are a God who speaks. Help us to be a people who hear. And it's your name, Jesus, we pray. Amen. Arian Foster, running back for the Houston Texans, came out this week and made a proclamation. He says, I don't believe in God. I'm an atheist. Sports Illustrated decided to write an article, a page, or article about this. And through the article, it was interesting because, and I was drawn to why he made this statement, and it all boiled down to this. He had questions that he didn't know the answer to. He had questions about why things happen and why God is silent. His conclusion, there must not be a God. Or he certainly would do something. And I suspect Arian Foster's not alone. I suspect that those who proclaim they don't believe in God 
often do so because they face the mysteries and the questions. And they don't know what to do with them. And they can't reconcile in their minds a God they've painted with the God of the Bible. It seems we tend to want God neatly wrapped. But then God doesn't always answer our questions. And at times He's silent. The book of Habakkuk, and, and some pronounce it Habakkuk, and, and you'd say, well, which one is it? It depends which commentator or pastor you talk to. Nobody seems clear on which one it is, and when we meet Him in glory, He'll clear it up for us. But I'm going with Habakkuk, and, uh, but if you go um, Habakkuk, Habakkuk, whichever one, you're good to go. And so, but it's a great book. It's an amazing book. We learn some things, just a little background about the book, because it's important that we understand a little bit more about it. Habakkuk prophesied prior to 605 B.C., which was the date of the first invasion on Jerusalem by the Babylonians under Nebuchadnezzar. And it's at that time Daniel and his friends were taken captive. <clears throat> and that might put context to the book of Daniel. We know that his, his ministry occurred after the fall of Nineveh, which is in 612, because Assyria is not in the picture anymore, and the Chaldeans seem to be rising in power. So history and uh, other, other Old Testament books help us fill that in. So the evidence seems to give us a date of 612 to 605 B.C. But I think we can narrow it even more. We could probably even get it down to 612 to 610 B.C. because Josiah was still on the throne. His reforms in the land were still in effect and taking shape. And the spiritual condition we read about in verses 2 through 4 could not really have applied at the time of Josiah, but do fit very neatly during the reign of Jehoiakim. So we could, I think, confidently say that Habakkuk prophesied between 609 and probably 605 B.C. So that may help us a little bit about the timetable of it. You'll also notice through this prophecy you see the name Chaldeans and the Babylonians. You're like, who's who? Chaldeans were people who lived in southern Babylonia. They were considered highly intellectual, highly influential. And so God seems to point them out specifically as far as a subgroup of the whole Babylonians. In case you're wondering how that worked, I never could figure it out. Figure I might not be the only one. It's interesting because the book begins with a question, with a sob. If you look at it, how long, O Lord, will I call for help? You will not hear. And you see later in verse 13, the second part of it, he says, Lord, you're silent. That's his accusation. You're quiet. And it seems the silence is even more confusing than the questions. I'm convinced if we walked with God any amount of years, there's at one time or another we've all encountered the silence of heaven. When maybe we felt abandoned by God. Or we've known the pain of unanswered questions. Some of you know that abandonment, and some of you know that pain, even some of you might right now. have experienced that silence, and maybe some of you experienced longer than others. Maybe you've persisted in prayer for a wayward child. You've persisted in prayer for healing, for a loved one, for a parent, for a friend. You've prayed for the condition of a child or a friend. Your prayers were made in faith, your intentions were good, and yet it seems heaven is silent. And sometimes in that silence, I think we can be like children shivering in the cold. 
just longing for the arms of our Father to wrap around us. And yet it seems during those times, He's distant, even silent. And sometimes when there's those sting of unanswered questions, and heaven seems silent, we often try to fill the silence with our own thoughts, with our own conclusions. And if you're like that, Habakkuk can relate because that's exactly what he does. You see, when heaven is silent, like Habakkuk, we can conclude God does not hear us. That's what he says in verse 2. And you will not hear? Habakkuk, the name means embracer. And Habakkuk embraced the times in which he lived. And didn't he have a delightful ministry? He had to predict the coming of 70 years of captivity to the Babylonians. I'm sure that was a lot of fun. Habakkuk's unique, though, in that of all the prophets, he doesn't speak as much for God as he speaks to God. And it's in that conversation we learn, and we learn much. He asks the question, verse 2, how long? And it's an assumption that God is not listening. It's an anguished cry that you will not hear. It's, it's this idea of this connotation, Habakkuk says, that there's no active response from you, God. I.e., not only do I suspect you're not hearing, I suspect you're not doing anything. It's quite an accusation. Makes you want to duck when I read this first chapter. Like, man, you're pretty gutsy, Habakkuk, to talk this way to God. But I'm convinced, and somewhere in my spiritual journey, it's sunk in, that I'd rather wrestle with the silence and the questions than walk mechanically in my relationship with God. And that's my challenge to all of us. Especially maybe if you grew up in the church and you know the slogans and you know the routine, there's that part of us that's, that, that shallowly responds to times. It doesn't go deeper and wrestle and is honest. And I think we need to be honest like Habakkuk. That's how we grow. In verse 3, he cries out. Again, this is a cry of anguish. And there's, there's like word pairs here in verse 3. I want you to look at it. So why do you make me see iniquity and cause me to look on wickedness? So you got the, the words iniquity and wickedness paired. The next part of the verse, destruction and violence are paired. And then in that end of verse 3, strife and contention are paired up. I think all of that is to say that in every level, Habakkuk was very sensitive to sin. He didn't take it lightly. And I think that's important to this context. Because he's wrestling in a very real way. He's taking what's going on around him very seriously. He goes on in verse 2. Uh, verse two he said really these four questions he asks in verses 2 through 4 pre- that presuppose this fourth question. How long must I continue to cry out? Verse 2 and 3. How long must I continue to complain about violence? Verse 3. How do I have to continually look upon injustice? And they all three presuppose the fourth one. God, why don't you do something? Why don't you do something? It's a tough question. Maybe you've asked it. Habakkuk looks around, he sees flagrant sin, as we do today. You've read the news, you hear about the horrible, horrific things Planned Parenthood is doing. You've read it, so have I. We stand back and we shake our head. Sin that's openly committed in the front yards that years ago was in the back now are there for everyone to see. 
And if we're honest, we wonder sometimes, why, God, do people get away with these horrible crimes? Why are they getting away with these evil acts? God seems silent. And when He seems silent, there's a part of us that wonders if He's doing anything. And this is where it's so significant because without a proper view of God, we're going to be overwhelmed by the questions. Arian Foster's overwhelmed because they didn't have a proper view of God. I pray for him. Because I hope you do pray for those people who are wrestling and are overwhelmed because they don't have a proper view of God. But verse 4 teaches us something else. When heaven is silent, we may conclude that all hope is lost. Look at verse 4. Therefore the law is ignored. The word ignored means paralyzed. It's a rich word. Justice is never upheld. For the wicked surround the righteous. Therefore justice comes out perverted. In other words, God, the law is ignored. It's paralyzed. In other words, he'd reasoned God had withdrawn his hand from the matter and was allowing evil to rule. You see, the disintegration of a society into such factions, as he mentions in verse 3, is bound up with rejection of the forces that bring unity. And what are those forces that bring unity? Law and justice. That's why we have such a disunified nation. Because the unifying element is God's law and God's justice. And when that's ignored, there becomes perversion and disunity. And we can just read the paper to see that. The law's effectiveness seemed to Habakkuk paralyzed by corruption. The result was despair and hopelessness. And when observing all this, Habakkuk's questions intensified. Is God still in control? Evil seems so active. The key to getting beyond the whys, though, I'm convinced, is to see the who. Who's behind the scenes. Verse 5 through 11 teach us that when heaven is silent, we may conclude that there's permanent neglect. Notice God's answer in verse 5. Look among the nations, observe. Be astonished, wonder. Because I am doing something in your days you would not believe if you were told. I find that an interesting answer. Especially in light of Habakkuk's questions. God's answer is, look, I want to reveal something to you. First thing I want to reveal is I am doing something, Habakkuk. I'm not silent. I'm not sitting back. I am working. And I think there's great lessons here. The temporary silence of God does not suggest permanent neglect. God might seem silent to you, but be assured He's not neglecting you. Silence means God, I believe, is preparing to bring us to a deeper understanding of Himself. Let's be honest, when we don't hear from heaven, we begin to panic. And when God is silent, which has been true in my life, silence has preceded a greater revelation of Himself. And in that, I would never trade those times because of where God took me during them. Verse 5, the end of verse 5, when God says, I tell you that I'm doing something amazing, it will be difficult for you to believe. That's telling, isn't it? We, we understand that. We understand because in the silence and all the questions, we don't see God's hand and God's saying, I'm doing something. Even if I explained it to you, you'd have trouble believing it because you wouldn't understand it all. And that's when we have trouble. Because we need to believe something we can't see. We know we can't control it. 
We know it doesn't add up to all the equations of life that we've put together. And Habakkuk knew he lived among a people who needed disciplining. He knew that. But what astonished him is what God's instrument in disciplining them would be. The wicked Babylonians. God would use a ruthless, violent nation of Babylon as His instrument. His point, God was working. God was not neglecting them. But He's working in a way that would have blown their mind up if He tried to explain it. Verse 5, in your days, in other words, God's following a divine plan. His silence, again, does not mean neglect. There's a prayer of a woman who had watched a friend struggle for years. This is her prayer, recorded in the Atlantic Monthly. Lord, I call to you, and there's someone I want you to follow home. The night is cold. The wet leaves hide the edges of the dark path. He is lost. I would go with him if I could, but my arms around him share my coat. He is 300 miles away. No one else sees him. Do you see him? His step hurried through the black rain. Do you see him? Or are you still busy as you were when he harmed himself the last time? Are you still busy? He was the one who called. It's an honest prayer. This woman's wondering, is God neglected? Not only her, but her friend. His name was Lee. He lost his job. And for months upon months, he prayed for employment. He had a family to raise and feed. And all he was met with was silence. It was during God's silence, during this painful period, he prayed this, God help me please. Please don't humiliate me again. Not before my friends, not before my wife, not before my children, not before my parents. Father, What's helping finding me a job compared to the power it takes for you to run this world for even one day? Nothing. And if a sparrow doesn't fall without you noticing, why aren't you noticing me? Why are you tending millions of beautiful flowers that bloom today and are gone tomorrow, but you won't tend to me, your child? One nod, one word from you, and a door would open. Why are you humiliating me? Jesus, I don't know any more words. I have no more words. Does your silence mean no, you won't help me? Does it mean wait? How long? I'm listening, Lord. I'm straining to hear. I'm calling, Lord, with all my heart. Please, let me laugh again. Help me find reason for getting up in the morning. Take away this humiliation that slaps me in the face all day. Every day. That's authentic faith. That's getting real when it seems God is silent. I thought about this man, Lee, the one thing he needed, and it wasn't a job. It was a connection with God. A God he felt no longer cared enough to listen, let alone speak to help him. You see, when God is silent, we can conclude that he's neglected us. Verse 12 through 13 of chapter 1, we have more. Habakkuk teaches Because when heaven is silent, we can conclude that God's abandoned fairness. Habakkuk's reference to God's character is important. Notice what he notes in verse 12. God's eternal. He knows all. He's holy. 
Thus, the outcome can't be for evil. He's sovereign. Or he's appointed. He's established are the words he uses. He's a rock. He's secure. There's no need for evil. He's pure. His eyes are too pure to look on evil. And so Habakkuk goes to God's character, in a sense, for his defense. He says, God, this is the way you are. Surely you couldn't be acting this way. In other words, surely, God, you couldn't be fair. And in bringing in God's character to it, Habakkuk's saying, God, you're acting, well, unfair. Again, once again, I want to duck. (laughs) I mean, these are pretty pointed things Habakkuk's saying. In light of who God is, Habakkuk concludes God surely couldn't use evil people to dominate God's people because certainly he'd be being unfair. And I think it's time to say it. More often than not, we face the same quandary. Searching, disturbing questions outweigh absolute airtight answers. And so much of God's plan doesn't make sense. Thinking vertically is a discipline few have mastered. We prefer to live in the here and now seeing life as others see it. We're much more familiar and comfortable with the tactile and familiar logic shaped by our culture. But God offers a much better way to live, a much higher way to live. It is one that does require faith. And that faith can lift us to new places. God's will opens our minds to God-centered frame of reference, for without it, the questions, the silence, it will overwhelm us. And Habakkuk's wrestling. And God's plan may seem unfair. It may seem illogical. It may seem lacking compassion. But that's because we live in the here and the now. Verses 13 through 17. When God seems silent, we may assume that God's endorsed evil. Verse 13. Your eyes are too pure to prove evil. You cannot look on wickedness with favor. Why do you look with favor on those who deal treacherously? In the sense, Habakkuk seems to imply, God, you're lowering your standards. Verse 14, men and women are, treated un- are unfairly treated. Verse 17, God, you've allowed evil to be unrestricted. He uses the words unsparing or without sparing. And the question lingers. Should a loving God tolerate evil? And allow his people to suffer the consequences. In verse 13 and 14, again, you see the words why. Could it be, I wonder, in the strange unfolding of his will, we have failed to allow sufficient room for the permission of evil? God's decretive will and his permissive will, it seems his decretive will we get his permissive will when all the questions come. Especially when the silence comes. Isaiah 55, 8-9 through is a good reminder at this point. For my thoughts, they're not your thoughts. Neither are your ways my ways, declares the Lord. For as, heavens, for as the heavens are higher than the earth, so are my ways higher than your ways. My thoughts than your thoughts. We'd be wise to remember that. In our prayer times, in our world view. In verse 15, He speaks to the Chaldeans of power, their dominance, their skill and deception. Verse 16, he talks about them being prosperous, their illegitimate worship. And verse 17 leads to a question, will they continually destroy or God will you put an end to it? History shows us that after God used the Babylonians to discipline his people, 
He took care of the Babylonians not long after. But God was doing something in Habakkuk's day that he didn't understand. And I believe he's still doing that in ways we don't understand. In chapter 2, verse 1, Habakkuk says, I will stand on my guard post and station myself on the rampart. I will keep watch to see what he will speak to me and how I may reply when I am reproved. This is interesting. It's almost like Habakkuk saying, I'm going to watch because I demand you to answer me. (laughs) Once again, we want to duck. There's tension here. It's like a nervous tension we sense in Habakkuk as he assured the Lord that he'd wait for an answer to the dilemma. He's like a military guard on watch. God, I'm going to watch because you must answer me. Eric was bright. His future was full of promise. He entered college as a national merit scholar. He excelled in math, science, computer programming, majored in art history. He was an accomplished artist, musician, who traveled extensively. And he lived life to the fullest. He especially liked mountain climbing. It was his passion. He loved the beauty, and he said he loved the solitude. He loved the challenge of the climb and the exhilaration of the heights. He loved it all to the very end. He was 25 when one misstep on an Austrian mountainside cost him his life. And his death devastated the family, especially his father, who worked through the grief one slippery step at a time, seemingly hacking away at the ice with a questions and an attempt to gain a foothold of comprehension. He first asked himself the questions, then his family, then his friends, and then God. And here's what he wrote. How is faith to endure, O God, when you allow all this scraping and tearing on us? You have allowed rivers of blood to flow, mountains of suffering to pile up, sobs to become humanity's song, all without lifting a finger that we could see. You have allowed bonds of love beyond number to be painfully snapped. If you have not abandoned us, explain yourself. That's an honest prayer. And like Habakkuk, he demands an answer. But God's not a servant to our questions. He doesn't owe us anything. He is the Lord God Almighty. And while we can demand an answer, we can want a yes or no. The hardest thing to realize is sometimes God's answer of wait is an answer. But we don't like to wait. Habakkuk certainly didn't. But yet God's wait is as much of an answer as yes or no. But God's delays in answering are not God's denials. Those times he seems silent doesn't mean he doesn't care. It doesn't mean he's not working. And that's the message of Habakkuk 1. It's not a flippant subject. It's for those who desire desire an authentic faith, not a shallow mechanical one. But the message gives us hope. And these applications and principles are significant to gain a proper view of God. Proper view of the world we live in. You're going to need these. So please, mark them down. Keep them in your Bible. If you're like me, you'll need them more than once. God's silence does not mean He set aside a divine plan. He is still very much in control of history. Always has been, always will. There's never been a time 
never been a moment God's been surprised. There's never been a moment God says, oh, I didn't see that one coming. There's never been a moment God's looked at a people and said, I don't know, they look kind of big, they look kind of strong. God is always in control. Always in control of history. Even when He's silent, don't doubt it for a minute. Cling and claim to chapter 1-5. I'm doing something in your days we would not be, we would not even be able to understand if He'd not told us And if I would want to personalize that, would I encourage you? He's doing something in your life that you would not even believe or understand if he tried to explain it. He knows you that well. He knows you that exacting. God's silence does not mean he set aside a divine plan. God's silence often means he's preparing to bring his people into a deeper understanding of himself. You see, if God doesn't allow us at times to suffer... If God doesn't allow us sometimes to wrestle, there's a part of Him we cannot know. If there's a part of Him we cannot know, there's a part of Him we cannot love. And if we really do want to love God with all our heart, soul, and mind, wouldn't it stand to reason that God would allow things in our life that would help us know Him more so we could love Him more? It seems that way to me. God's silence often means He's preparing to bring His people into a deeper understanding of Himself. Your questions... We'll take you there if you're authentic. Please avoid the mechanical approach to a relationship with God. The canned prayers, the bumper sticker slogans. They'll never take you deeper. And number three, God's silence will require us to reaffirm basic truth. You ever walk on a sidewalk that's been just cleared of snow? And it's got that, that thin like slush, and it's slippery. And as you walk on it, and you know it's slippery, you're looking for what? A dry spot. You're looking for something that you can put a step on, and you're confident it won't slip. You look for sure footing to avoid falling. Might I encourage you to do the same with times in spiritual difficulty? Remind yourself of truth. Because that's sure footing. I'm going to read Psalm 13, very short. It's written by the psalmist. I want you to know the wrestling, but I want you to know this the conclusion. How long, O Lord, will you forget me forever? How long will you hide your face from me? How long shall I take counsel in my soul, having sorrow in my heart all the day? How long will my enemy be exalted over me? Doesn't sound like David moved. Sounds like David seeking God and still... He's encountering this difficult time. He goes on, Consider and answer me, O Lord my God, and light my eyes, or I will sleep the sleep of death. And my enemy will say I have overcome him, and my adversaries will rejoice when I am shaken. Here's the sure footing. Slippery times in David's life, but here's the sure footing. You need it and I need it. Don't forget it. But I have trusted in your loving kindness. My heart shall rejoice in your salvation. I will sing to the Lord because He has dealt bountifully with me. It's hard to look at verse 6 and realize the same guy who wrote verse, four, verse 1. But how could he write verse, sing about, verse 6 about singing as he had sure footing? And the sure footing was God's unloving kindness. His unfailing love. Not our failing perspective. Not our failing ways. Our failing plans. But His unfailing love. Our perspective is slippery. And if we don't stand on sure footing of His unfailing love and the promise that He'll never leave us nor forsake us, we will fall. 
But we can trust. We can trust His unfailing love. It's the rope that holds us. It's the sure footing that we can stand on. It certainly is the sure foundation we sang about. You can have sure footing. And God's silence will require you and I to reaffirm this basic truth often. The only way I know to conclude a message like this is to pray for you and pray for me. So let's pray. Lord, I know an overwhelming majority of people pray. Seems especially when there's a fate of a loved one or we think back to 9-11 when there was a nation that seemed to hit its knees. It seems we pray a lot during those times. Yet in spite of all our prayers, not all our loved ones make it, God. Some fall to their deaths. Some fall sick. Some continue to wrestle through unemployment. Some fall prey to freezing weather. And in spite of our prayers, relationships keep breaking. We wonder what makes the difference. How does prayer fit into all this, we wonder. It seems people pray and live and people pray and die. We wonder, is it some formula? Is is it the right words? What is it, God? I know you care about what happens in this world. You created it, you sustain it, you sent your son to die for it. But we honestly wonder, God, if we're honest, why don't you intervene more? We feel like children in a world that's lost its wonder. In a world that's turned scary with shadows. Seems hard to find our way home. We ask God you'd please be patient with all our questions. Especially the ones that seem so childish. Grant that in our faltering prayers we might stumble across a question that would draw us closer to you so we could know you more and love you more. For we know in your presence is peace. And I pray for my brothers and sisters here, maybe those listening in the car at home, that in their questioning, they would hear you say even now that you love them. And your love will never fail. It's inexhaustible. Help them to hear it clearly. And maybe some for the very first time, God. I pray they'd hear it. Might they realize deep in their soul, might we all realize that you have not neglected us. You never will. Help us to trust in your unfailing love. In Jesus' name I pray. Amen.